0: Log talk radio.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Anna Chat. This evening, we're going to be talking with John Seed of the Huff- Huffington Post, excuse me, and Deanna Piawati of Combustus, and we're going to be talking about the role of uh, the media on uh, in representational art, on representational art, however you want to talk about that. It affects, um, you know, where... We see the role of the media going in, in the 21st century, things like that. So John and Deanna will be talking to us about that. And joining me on the show today uh, will be my co-host for this series, uh, Michael Pierce, who's the director for TRAC, um, the Representational Art Conference, which will be held in March, uh, March 2nd through the 5th, um, 2014, and uh, will actually uh, be broadcasting live from that um, venue Uh, Michael has invited us out to do that, so I want to say hello to Michael. Hello, Michael.
2: Hi, Linda. How are you doing? It's lovely to be with you here at uh, at AMO.
1: Yes. um, Actually, I'm doing quite well. It's going to be a busy day today, and um, of course, for all of us, it's always busy, so I do appreciate everybody taking time out to talk with us today. It's going to be a great show.
2: Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, Let me introduce uh, our guests today. Uh, Let's start off with Deanna Pioati. Uh, Diana runs Combustus Magazine and uh, is a, a wonderful uh, character in the representational art scene and constantly profiling uh, and interviewing artists and writers and dancers and people who are very active in the, uh, in the art world all over the world. And she's, uh, she's quite an intriguing person. Uh, used to be a, a librarian and uh, once a magazine journalist and worked in television too. So uh, quite a, a range of experience in, uh, in the arts. Uh so hello Diana. Uh, welcome to welcome to the show.
3: Thank you Michael. Hi Linda. And Hi, uh,
2: secondly, oh I beg your pardon. Uh, secondly, I'd like to uh introduce John Seed. Uh John Seed is a, a professor of art and art history over here in Southern California. Uh he he teaches at uh, Mount San Jacinto College. Uh he's a, a journalist. He writes for the Huffington Post. He's done uh, magazine writing, uh, entertainment writing and uh Uh, was a uh, 2012 Creative Capital Arts Writers Grant finalist, Uh, and he writes uh, occasionally controversial posts in the Huffington Post uh, and is a a wonderful, wonderful fellow. He came to track last year, which is where I first met John, and it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, John. Are are you there?
0: Uh, Michael, yeah, it's great to be here, and uh, a new medium for me. I'm used to kind of hiding behind the uh, blog text. We'll we'll see how I do on talk radio.
2: (laughs) Yeah, different experience for you, I think. much slower. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I assume that we should probably jump right into um, our first question. And uh, what i like to do is to get our listeners a little more familiar with um, both Combustus and the Huffington Post and what John writes. So, um, Deanna, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about uh, Combustus, why you started it, what your goals are. Um, yeah, you know, how I guess we had talked earlier, um, privately, uh, when I re- asked you to be on the show and you were saying that you really don't feel like you're, you know, part of the media, but I certainly view you that way. So just tell us a little bit about the uh, goals and objectives that, that you have for Combustus.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Um I do see myself more as a stepchild, um, because of my librarian background. Uh and as a librarian my my role is as I saw it, to find cultural treasures and bring them out to the community and lay them out, whether it was a musician I would have come to a performance or it was, whether it was a wonderful novel or um, a piece of art I put up in our gallery. And I'd bring it together, and then I'd get to kind of stand back and see what ignited <laughs> in folks as they as they walked through the door. And, and that's pretty much my mission with Combustus, Um I keep my eyes and ears open, and when I see something that I feel like adds to the to the conversation of what it means to be human um, and what art does to our soul, then I will contact that folk and invite them to be interviewed. And so that's that's my role. Um, I don't see myself as being an expert in art. If anything, um, I like to hear what the artists, the musicians, the writers, dancers themselves have to say about why they do what they do, and then the responses that we get from the readers what's ignited in them you know what 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 creates a connection for them and um so really i'm Combuses for me is an opportunity to create exploration dialogue uh inspiration and um yeah it it sounds like both a lofty goal but i think it's a, a very basic goal so that's kind of that's my mission
1: yeah it- It sounds wonderful. If if anyone hasn't had the the chance to check out um, Combustus, uh, real quick, Deanna, tell them the the web address.
3: So it's um, www.combustus, which is spelled C-O-M-B-U-S-T-U-S, and just think of combustion, uh, dot com.
1: And, and John, if you can chime in and give us – you have a a sort of different view – of this. The Huffington Post reaches a lot of users on the web and and viewers, and um, you also are a professor, so um, tell us a little bit about your goals and um, objectives and why you write for the Huffington Post.
3: I will, and
0: the first thing I want to say is that, Deanna, you have more pull than you think you do as a blogger, (laughs) and that's something I want to talk about a little bit later in the conversation, but I very much respect what Diana is doing. I, I see her as a pioneer. Now that I've said that, I'll tell you my story. I have a little bit of what I call a, like a Clark Kent Superman story, because honestly, I'm a community college art instructor, two hours out of L.A. in an area that isn't too developed yet. And in the course of my career, I, from time to time, I felt pretty isolated. Uh, it takes some energy to get in the car and go to Los Angeles, or uh, go to the Getty, or or go to MoCA. And and as the years have gone by, um, I really haven't felt that great a connection to the art scene. But I had been writing a bit here and a bit there, uh, mainly on the Internet. And about three years ago, I said, I really, really need to write about art. I mean, this this is important. I need to find a way to do it. And I contacted the Riverside Press Enterprise. And to make a long story short, the editor liked my sample and said, John, write something up. And I did. I did a review of the Master of Fine Arts show at UC Riverside uh, three and a half years ago. And when I sent it into the editor, there was silence. You know, I just didn't hear back for a while. And when I finally did hear back, my piece came back to me radically edited. It, it had a different title. It had been turned into bullet points. And a lot of the kind of the opinionation of it had been taken out because I really had written a review and it just wasn't my writing. And it was pretty clear to me that, that what that editor wanted was a little bit more like a, a gallery listing. He wanted uh, bullet points. He didn't want real art writing. And uh, I, I kind of uh, I felt a great sense of frustration. I, I told him, keep the $50 and take my name off it, and I don't think newspaper work is, is right for me. And at the same time, literally a week or two later, uh, I had been following a critic named Peter Frank on Facebook, and I saw that he was part of the new Huffington Post art section. And I'd been reading the Huffington Post for some of the other uh, content. So I sent Peter my sample. He, in turn, sent it to a wonderful woman named Kimberly Brooks, who's both a painter and the founding editor of Huff Post Arts. Uh, she took my sample and said, you're on. And to make a long story short now, uh, I think it's 157 blogs and uh, over three years of blogging for the Huffington Post and it's absolutely changed my career in every way and, and we can talk about more of that uh later in the interview.
2: Well so um so John what, that leads me into a a question about how the um the the art coverage that's uh, out there has changed over the, year, the years because it seems to me that looking in newspapers and magazines I follow English newspapers quite a lot because I'm English obviously and um it seems to me that very few of the English newspapers uh, cover art at all well. They, they, almost, uh, they almost don't cover it. Uh, the only one that really does it well is the, uh, is the Guardian uh, newspaper, and the others are pretty shabby, frankly. Uh, so how do you think that um, art coverage is changing, and is this, uh, is, are we in a new world?
0: I, I think we are, and, and I'll tell you more about the United States, where I try to pay attention to, to what's happening. Uh, I think you and I may know this, but it's worth repeating, that the newspaper industry continues to be one of the fastest shrinking industries in the United States. And that's for a variety of reasons, uh, but mainly let's just say that revenues are way down. And critics of all kinds, uh, traditional Music critics, phone uh, critics, art critics uh, are being laid off, uh, you know, month by month. Very recently, we saw uh, Jory Finkel, who was a wonderful art writer who profiled artists and uh, interviewed artists. She was laid off from the L.A. Times. So the Times now has Christopher Knight, who's a very, very fine critic, but that's, you know, quite a reduction in their staff. And one of the first blogs I wrote, I interviewed uh, Robert Pincus who for 25 years had been a critic in the San Diego area for the Union Tribune. And that newspaper has gone through seven sets of layoffs. And uh, Robert was let go a couple sets of layoffs ago and is now with the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego. So that's just a way of saying I've been watching uh, the attrition rate of traditional critics in newspapers. And then the flip side of the story is that as you know, critics have, have lost their jobs, or have been, uh, we'll say, emphasized less, the blogosphere is what's taking off. And I've seen through the Huffington Post and uh, just through the growth of blogs like like Combustus, really a greater variety of voices and a very, very different kind of voice in in blogging. Uh, One of the things I want to talk about today is how a blog, uh, from conception to publication, is so different from traditional uh, newspaper writing or criticism. Yes, yeah, so and that
2: leads us over to you, Deanna. How, how do you feel about this in, in your role uh, as a, uh, a leader now uh, in the art world?
3: Oh, please don't.
2: You are. <laughs> you can't really escape. That's <laughs> intimidating when you say that, very
3: intimidating. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with what we just heard, um, and I think that there's, there's pluses and minuses that come with that. I think that now... Um, The public is taking a much more active role, not just bloggers, but, you know, my friends, you know. And um, what do I think about this art that my friend shared? And not necessarily feeling that I have to wait and read what an authority has to say. Um, So I think that's the positive. I think people are asking themselves questions and having conversations with their neighbors about it, I think. Um, But there's also a loss that comes with that. And we were even seeing it with newspapers. Uh, did you have a question? All right. uh, we were even seeing it with, um, I remember back 20 blah, blah, blah years ago in my journalism class talking about how even then um, when stories were being covered, there wasn't so much of the back story. There wasn't the historical wider context. And so we're seeing less of that if we're having folks who don't have necessarily um, the, the education for instance, that you have Michael, and they're sharing their opinion. They might not have the full history that goes behind art, so we're losing that part of the conversation. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I love having you do interviews and pieces for Converse's. I think that that's been we've been losing that, and we're 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 missing that. We're hungry for that, and people are responding to that. So that's my answer. Mm-hmm. It is.
1: Um, it is interesting that with the new social media and um, the the Internet, if you will, how much it, it's being taken away, John, from the old traditional critic to, you know, to, to just anybody out on the street that happens to love art and, and looks at it.
0: it. It's very, very true, and I, I, I agree with uh, Deanna's perceptions. That mm-hmm. There are pluses and there are minuses. And something that, that, by blogging, I've suddenly become very aware of is just how important the context is for every different kind of art writing. You know, there's really kind of an economic background and a an organizational background for every type of writing. And I'll give you some comparisons. Uh, I had a job a couple of years ago writing a profile about an artist for Harvard Magazine. And it was going to be a 900-word piece, which is very, very short, and... Uh, from the time I proposed it to the time it was published was a year and a half. Mm. And it was extraordinary because I I wrote my draft, and when I got my editorial comments back, the comments were three times as long as the text of the article. And then I went through two more sets of edits, and then finally, like I said, after a year and a half, it was published. And, you know, what a tightly controlled situation working with editors, and, and the editors made me better. I mean, the editors made the piece much, much better, and they were very careful about accuracy and they were very careful about vetting the material, but it was kind of a slow process, and I didn't feel that that journalism had freshness by the time it was published. By contrast, when I blog, literally I I wake up in the morning, and if the coffee does its job, I say to myself, there's something I want to blog about. Uh, I don't have an editor assigning me the content, Um, The editors at the Huffington Post are really a team. There's an arts desk of seven people in in New York. And when I send in a blog, they look very briefly at grammar, although I try to do a good job there. They also make sure that I'm not saying something that will get the Huffington Post sued, which is, you know, good to check for. (laughs) They check that I have permission to run the images, and then they post it. So a blog which might be very short and might be very long, and which was about the topic of my choice, starts in the morning, and it may be live and being read by people all across the world later that afternoon or evening. So just such a difference in the whole genesis of the uh, the journalism.
2: You know, this speaks to uh, the uh, democratic nature of, of the internet, doesn't it? And uh, I think that's one of the things that's really transformed our approach to representational art, which uh, had been really quite excluded, uh, despite people's protestations that it wasn't. It really was excluded, uh, and now with with this kind of democratic approach to uh, writing and uh, and talking about art. Uh, we have much more accessibility to the, the, the really exciting things that are going on in representation a lot. Uh, for example, track. We, we couldn't possibly do the conference if it wasn't for uh, organizations like Facebook and using that social uh, media to, to get the word out about it. We just couldn't do it. I think it would be extremely difficult.
0: And also because of the, I'm going to say there's a different spread of, uh, how do I say support or revenue? And to give you an example, on the Huffington Post, which I think has just barely become profitable. What I understand about it is that they're opening international editions right and left, and they're taking kind of the, the Amazon.com model. They want to have so much coverage and so much traffic that they'll be able to generate enough revenue you know, to support the Huffington Post. So
2: Contrary it's all about
0: advertising. The, yeah, it, it, uh, even though it sold to AOL for a substantial price, for $300 million, it has not been a highly profitable business. But anyways, when I post a blog, I don't worry about what an advertiser thinks because my advertisers are probably weight loss products and new movies and uh, credit repair. So if I want to say something positive or negative about an artist or a gallery, I feel very, very free. If I'm writing for an art magazine, that's a whole different story and yes. you know getting back to what diana does one of the things i admire about diana diana i don't know how much revenue you have and who your advertisers are but uh it's very very hard to build a base to support what you're doing journalistically
3: um well, Rather than responding to that, I, I really want to respond to what you just said before, John, which is that I love the freedom that I have also. Um, I don't have to, to worry at all about passing a particular artist um, by any any uh, board to, to approve it or not. And that, and that allows um, a freedom of the press that isn't in very many places. So I, I completely agree that that's a definite bonus we have. However, I did um, lose a carrier because of Michael's, because of my interview and Michael's um, review of one of the artist's works. And so I had to that make a decision. The,
2: that was the piece on Dino Valls.
3: Dino Vals, yes, um, which was wonderful. And it, the reader's response was huge. But the material was definitely controversial, and so I had to make a decision. Do I pull it? And if so, I get the um, the support back, the financial support, which isn't much at all, but still. Or I say, wait, this is a slippery slope that I do not want to go down, and so that's a decision I made. So it's not like um, we have complete freedom, but it's it's good enough for me. It's um, It's wonderful, yeah.
2: Thank you for supporting that, by the way, Deanna. I don't think I've ever said that to you, but uh, I'm so glad that you did choose to keep the article on. Uh, I think that was a very good decision.
3: Well, as a librarian, you know, um, I really, really am very cautious and leery about any attempts at, st- at sem- uh, c- censorship. Everybody likes the idea that whatever offends them would be removed from the conversation, but when you think that you're going to give that same sort of uh power to all of your neighbors who might have very different sensibilities, then that gets a bit scary and um Pretty soon you look around and there's nothing left and uh actually, one of the kind of the unwritten rules of being a librarian is that each librarian needs to purchase materials, whether it's the films or the music, or novels, or nonfiction, that pushes their boundaries that they might not agree with, um, politically, spiritually, or otherwise, because it's it's not about just reflecting who that librarian is and what they think people ought to be reading and exposed to, but about keeping the um, culture full and rich. And so often people will think that everyone I profile or interview and combust is is a reflection of my own aesthetics. And sure, it definitely is. Um, I have a very limited amount of time and space, and so I am very choosy about who I select. But on the other hand, I do push my own boundaries sometimes and say, I think this person has something to add to the conversation and let's include them. Or I might have questions. Uh, there was an artist who I came across, and I probably spent a good month debating whether or not I even wanted to approach them for an interview. And I am so very glad I did. Uh, that artist surprised me with how deep the thought was that went into their artwork, and I'm so glad I didn't listen to my little um, "ooh, what's going on here" um, alarm inside my head. And I think that the the bone the the plus for that, the reward for that is passed on to the reader who might have had the same initial response, but perhaps they trust Combustus or trust me um, a little bit and they say, well, there's got to be some reason why this artist was selected, and then they read the interview, and then they read what's behind it, and then they look at the art and new fresh eyes, and um, that's really exciting for me.
2: Who was that artist, Anna? Uh,
3: Jason Yarmoski. Do you know Jason? Are you familiar with his so. work? No, yeah. I don't think so. Oh, well, He's got a new show. Um, I'll put something on. I'll, I'll do a little uh, a blog piece about it. In the blog <coughs> section of Combustus, I'll do updates of artists who I've profiled in the past, but they're continuing to do interesting things. So I'll put something out there. But um, he's a young artist, young painter, and his work is <coughs> pr- predominantly his grandparents <coughs> and their uh, contemporaries. But he doesn't paint them knitting in uh, rocky chairs. He paints them ex- showing the full imagination that we typically associate with children, maybe teenagers, maybe a few rambunctious, r- rebellious, um, leftover hippies, but certainly not our grandparents. And so we don't expect to see them in tutus or... Um, in the
2: rat, I do remember this artist's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, that gets uh, me thinking about controversy, generally speaking, because we have, we obviously do step on people's toes with the things that we like and dislike, and there there is a, a very public discourse in uh, and uh, argument that's uh, that continues in forums all over the place. Um, and what, how do we identify the things that really push buttons? That's something that I find very odd. Uh, John, for example, you wrote uh, your blog, a modest proposal for Mocha. Uh, and asked uh, Mocha to show more representational paintings, which in itself doesn't seem to be a particularly um, dramatic or, or uh, uh, controversial statement. But what happened when you put that post out there, that, that uh, blog out there?
0: That one really hit a nerve. And, and Michael, honestly, as a blogger, you can, I mean, you can be calculating. Sometimes I say to myself, I, I'd like to make an opinion piece. I'd like to you know, get some comments back from people. I'd like to hear from people. But that one went beyond what I expected. And it can be uncomfortable because as a blogger, you are a public figure. People can easily find my email address. And even though, you know, on the Huffington Post, I'm about 50 pixels tall. You know, I'm a little uh, floating head there as as a JPEG. Uh, Sometimes comments really take off and everybody knows who I am. Uh, but the comments generally come in anonymously. People have a, uh, a username, and you do get net rage. You do get people being insulting or nasty. Uh, the Huffington Post has moderators, so occasionally something gets screened out. But if it's not libelous, you know, if it's opinionated, they'll put it up there, and it, it can really take a toll. I had uh, somebody very, very upset when I posted my interview with Bo Bartlett. And the essence of that was I think that this is someone who personally did not like Bo Bartlett, and that kind of Mm -hmm. derailed the conversation from being about what do we think of this man's interview and what do we think about the, uh, the content. So I guess what I'm saying is, as a blogger, you can hit a nerve, and it cuts both ways. It can be very, very positive. It's really great to know that people care about what you write, and sometimes you have fantastic discussions. And sometimes it's kind of painful, and you do feel vulnerable and exposed as a writer.
2: Deanna, how about you? You have the same sort of experience?
3: Uh, It's interesting what John was saying. It It surprises us, doesn't it? And, Michael, you've experienced this as well. You share something thinking that there's going to be a certain response going in a certain direction, and then somebody really... It hits a nerve, um, an unexpected nerve in an unexpected place, in just one reader, perhaps, and then that starts a whole conversation that can get very, yeah, very heated. Yeah, it's, it's, that's always fascinating. Um, I think was your initial question: How do we decide what's controversial or, or what? Well, might yeah, be?
2: is there is there any way to yeah. know when you're writing, you know, what what direction to take, and and what's our intent here, you know?
3: Um, I do, I do use my, my Facebook accounts quite a bit and sometimes what I'll do is use that as a, let me throw something out there and see what the responses kind of think before I decide on, so sometimes, um, I'm giving power to my followers on Facebook to let me know, is this an artist you want to see more of and learn more about, Is are questions coming up that, and you would be interested in, in me interviewing them about, um, or if somebody's saying, "Wow, this is really," I'm not, I'm not too comfortable with this. This person paints dead birds. I don't know if I consider those art, you know. Um, so I use that a little bit as testing temperature, as well as just kind of seeing other conversations that are going on and and who people are responding to. Um, in terms of me directing. When I interview, I keep those things in mind because if I have those questions, I know my readers will. And if I take the safe route and avoid asking that awkward question, then my reader is going to feel a little bit like, "Hey, wait a second, how come she didn't ask about blah blah blah?" And it'll come up in their either private questions they'll send to me or in comments they leave. Um, so yes, I, I I don't believe in 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 um, hiding from from what might be controversial, but I, I do give the benefit of the doubt, and that's the way I I offer my questions. I don't put somebody on the stand and uh, try to prove, you know, what a, what a hard-hitting uh, journalist I am. I, I ask them from a point of respect, assuming that they've made the choices they've made artistically, aesthetically, for very sound reasons, and it's my job to help them um, put those into words so people can go, ah, I get it now. So I don't – does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah.
3: You you know, Deanna,
0: I really – I I try very, very hard to let people know that I'm not a critic. I I define myself as either an art blogger or an art writer. And every now and then I'll write something with an element of criticism, but I avoid the title, art critic. But it's so interesting, I think that that many, many people in the public, as soon as you publish something about art – they assume you're a critic, and they even get mad at you because they see you as an authority figure even when you're not trying to be one. Uh, People still have the habits, I think, of traditional press. Uh, Mm -hmm. I went to a memorial service for an artist a couple of years ago when I just had been blogging, maybe six months, and someone I didn't know kind of grabbed me and moved me over to someone else. They wanted to start a conversation, and they said, so-and-so, I want you to meet John Seed, He's the art critic for the Washington Post, <laughs> and I my office went out of my head, and I said, "Excuse me," I said, "I'm a blogger for the Huffington Post, wrong post." <laughs> but there was this whole whole kind of of uh, of assumptions, and and sometimes when people get mad at me in the comments, they say, you know, with the Bob Bartlett piece, well, you know, you're a critic, and uh, you have this authority and you have this power in the art world, and and you're uh, you know. Uh, you're you're promoting the work of this individual. And I try to get back and I try to say, no. I interview people I find interesting, and I write about artists that interest me, but I'm not a critic making pronouncements about uh, this is the new next thing or the new next person in the art world. I'm eclectic. You know, I blog about Mm -hmm. Ai Weiwei, and I blog about Nerdrum and uh, I blog about literally uh, what I think is interesting when I wake up and sip my coffee in the morning. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And often probably what comes out of your conversations with your friends, yes?
0: Oh, on Facebook, I I
3: ask people, hey, who's
0: having a show? And when I post an interview, it doesn't mean, again, this is the next great artist, it means hey, it looks like a nice show. It's literally at that level. It's, uh, hey, I'd I'd like to, I try to do good with my blog. I try to shine my spotlight on artists that uh, all it takes is nice show or I think they're interesting or maybe I just like them personally but let's mm-hmm. get them and their work out there and let's give them the chance to tell their mm-hmm. story I just think that's mm-hmm. always positive
3: mm-hmm. Deanna I, I, there's,
2: uh, there's more of a theme to to uh, Combustus, uh, how how do you uh, choose the, the people that you want to show their work and interview and all that
3: I don't know you see me as being that much different from John I um I basically I do
2: I do you, there's really? more of a, an emphasis of magic realism and um uh, more of a, a romantic sensibility uh, uh there's yeah. uh, a, a tendency towards uh, towards uh, not realism particularly but uh, uh, things that appear to be realistic um in the in the work uh, so yeah I think there there is there's a theme there uh, there's very little abstraction on combustors. Yeah and I
3: agree with yes, Michael yeah, and um, and I have to watch that, right? Because this can't be. This isn't Diana's <laughs> private, you know, <laughs> book here. And I have to. In fact, my daughter, who's nine years old, she says, "Mom, I was looking through combuses and it says that you have um, you have tabs there for for uh, profiles of musicians and." dancers and, and writers but when i go into artists you got like i counted this many interviews with artists but you don't have nearly as much with the musicians and had um and dancers so you really need to focus more on that you know and i and um uh, and uh and, and she has a point and another friend of mine Uh, We were at the the lake the other day, and she said, and she knows I'm a writer, but she says, do you also paint? And I said, well, why do you ask that? She says, because I really see you profiling a lot of painters, and I can see that it really ignites something in you. So I have to watch that. that I'm like a kid in a, if you let me loose in a bookstore, I just gravitate towards what, you know, draws me, you know, spiritually, emotionally, (laughs) soulfully and that's kind of what leads me, but I have to also kind of watch out. Okay, wait, we already did some of that. Let's go over here and challenge myself. So, um, and friends of mine who have strengths in other areas, like uh, who can see things that I don't necessarily um, automatically connect with, they are a great sources. There's a, a Finnish musician, um, Jako Savolainen. Uh, who goes under the name of Alvari Loom, and he's been with me from the very beginning. He was actually the very first artist I, I profiled. He's a pre improv jazz musician. And he often gives me insight into abstract art or into um, alternative music that helps me listen with new ears. And so I have friends like that, thankfully, from all over the world, from all sorts of genres, who will help me see beyond would I personally, Deanna biowati connect with? And so I have to watch that. But yes, you're right, Michael. That's, for some reason, um, that really, and maybe it's my background as both a storyteller and as a librarian who likes to connect folks with stories, I see stories in that particular genre of artistic expression, I do. And so that's (laughs) where the child in me gets excited, and I want to interview them, and I want to ask them questions. and and uh, find out about the stories that I see them telling and, and and all of that. Yes, yes, that's true. And I have to watch that. You should pay <laughs> but you, attention. But you're bad to for me stuff. because you also love that. So the two of us, we get together and we get excited <laughs> when we come across a, like I I don't want to, well, I guess at, at this point it's not giving it away, and, and at this point it will be history. But we both, you and I have um, two interviews that are coming out, depending on if I can get it done, uh, if I work through the wee hours tonight that are coming out this weekend, um, both happen to be figurative artists, painters, one a male and one a female, uh, who I have been big fans of. And and you and I were both excited when we shared the names with each other. Oh, yes, let's do this person. Let's contact this person. So, yeah, the two of us are bad for each other that way.
0: (laughs) I I was going to say to Deanna, listening to that, you should really pay attention to the way that Linda and Michael see uh, your career evolving because I think that's how others likely see you. They see you as a leader, and in being an editor, you're essentially a curator. Even, even maybe when you don't think you're making uh, sets of choices over time, people are going to see how you curate uh, your publication, and it's going to be a very, very big part of their expectation and uh, what they want from Combustus.
3: Well, I, yeah, I, I need to. I guess at some point I need to ask what readers want um, because initially the goal for me was to do, as I said, what I do as a librarian, where I would I would look at the whole year ahead and I would have a theme for each month. And so, for for instance, September is banned book month, and so I'd have not only the banned books on display, but I'd also find a controversial painter and have their artwork up on the wall in our gallery and then maybe have music that that pushes the, the boundaries a bit and that would all be happening in that month type of things. And with the idea being that maybe you don't really connect with art, you connect on a soul level with music. You come in for the concert and what's this book over here that's intriguing and well you walk by the gallery and this art kind of speaks to you and and vice versa. And so I like that kind of I don't know if the word is cross-pollination, but I love feedback that I get when somebody says, "You know, I don't really, I never really understood poetry," and I and I normally read Combustus for the art or the music, but wow, this I really get it. This one particular poet you interviewed, or or they can say the same thing about art, and I love that. And that's that's what my initial goal was. But you're you're right. I need to think in terms of. Has it gotten too big and too unwieldy for me to have that luxury? And it's actually been proposed that I break it into <sighs> different magazines with different genres. And um, <laughs> so, at some point, I should ask readers for their feedback. What do they want? Yeah.
1: It's interesting. that Do you find, Diana, that the reason why you're you're interviewing more? Uh, artists and musicians, or possibly writers, is because of the connections that you've made. Better, bringing you forward. I mean, more focused, I guess, on that particular genre versus the other two.
3: Well, sure. It always is that way. You know, you you hang out with a group of friends, and then you have a great experience with them, and then they tell you about friends of theirs that they'd like you to meet, and so on and so forth. And yeah, it 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 does ha- that that does happen, right? Um, right, and there are some communities that are more su- su- supportive of one another that way. And, and something that I find really refreshing is I haven't seen any competition among um, emerging painters, emerging artists, whether whatever wherever they are on on their climb. Uh, I don't see it like, well, gee, I want to be in the limelight, but I certainly don't want to. Connect you with this other person who I think is amazing because I kind of like the fact that I'm this amazing person you profiled, right? No, what I hear mm-hmm. from someone like especially Pam Hawks, she's she's so she's so lovely in that way. She'll say, oh, you know, who I'd love you to profile is so and so. Have you seen their work? Um, you know, and and I'll get that so often from somebody who I can't. Oh, I would love to hear what so and so has to say about their work. Do you think you know? Have you seen their work? Do you, um, so, yes, yes, that does happen, yes. And, and I see that happening more in this particular genre. I don't know why that is, yes.
2: I think it has to do with uh, the representational art world uh, uh, being somewhat excluded, as, as I mentioned earlier on. And we, I think there's a feeling that we're all in it together at this moment. We're, we're building a community uh, mm-hmm. And that's rather exciting. Uh, Pam Hawkes, by the way, of course, is going to be at track. She'll be uh, doing a demonstration of um,
3: oh. how to
2: how to do encaustic and uh, multimedia work that she does. Uh, she's a wonderful uh, artist, an amazing painter. I think there's a profiling yes, combustus on her, isn't there? A couple of oh three.
3: yes, more than yeah. once. Yes, mm-hmm. she's amazing. Special yeah.
2: John, <laughs> John Seed is going to be at track too, Diana. Did you know? He's going. To, John is going to be uh, uh, running a panel. Uh, John, do you want to tell us about that briefly?
0: Well, yeah, I I want to talk about uh, Bay Area figurative painting. Uh, And in fact, I'll I'll give a plug for my own blog. Uh, About a week ago, I posted a blog about the show Richard Diebenkorn, The Berkeley Years. And the show is going to be in two venues. It just closed at the de Young Museum in San Francisco, and then it's going to reopen here in Southern California in Palm Springs and run just a little bit into uh, 2014. And I can't recommend the show highly enough. It's it's an astonishing, just a beautiful, beautiful show, and it's a beautiful show about an artist's uh, development. But uh, to me, the power of, of Bay Area figurative art is it really is between. It, it came out of this era when abstraction had the limelight, and uh, Clifford Still was the big influence in the Bay Area, where, where Devin Korn was coming of age as an artist. And yet with the influence of David Park who'd come out of uh, Boston and some other colleagues, they really recommitted to representation. And the results are so beautiful and so interesting. So what I want to talk about at TRAC is how there are different ways that representation can come through and and can be a hybrid, can mix with other points of view, and uh, can just be very, very rich that way. Uh, You know, I think as a writer and as an artist, I'm really one of those in-between people. I, I like to be in-between different points of view, and I'm much more interested in what people uh, have in common with each other than in the ways that people are, are different from each other, and that's true in my taste of, of art. So anyways, that's what I'll be talking about at track. I'll be talking about Richard Diebenkorn, uh, David Park, Elmer Bischoff, and, and Bay Area representation. Oh, juicy. Yeah. Are you going to make it, Deanna?
2: Are you going to come down to track?
3: I wish. Uh, are you going to record it?
2: Record track? Are we going to record? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? It, Linda will uh, be yeah. there doing radio shows, it? so there there yeah. will be a record of it, and uh, uh-huh. we'll definitely be videotaping uh, some of the uh, the key uh, the key speeches. Uh, so oh, you there will. there'll be a record, yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know yes. wh- I don't know how they'll get put out there or or even if they'll get put out there there are surprising uh, problems that fa- you, you know you face when you do try and uh, uh, put stuff out there for public distribution uh, so uh, I'm not sure quite what shape that will take at the moment my focus personally is getting the conference to happen and and uh, yes. uh, making that work uh, so um uh, you know how how uh, records of it take place uh, uh, is another matter that I have to figure out uh, later on with with uh, my fabulous team of people who helped put the thing together. Uh, so I don't know yeah, right. the answer.
1: And we have some restrictions with AMLO, chat, that we can only uh, broadcast for two hours. But um, certainly Michael and I need to get together and talk about how that is all going to take place and what, and what we're going to do um, with that, like maybe a separate panel discussion or something. I don't know. But uh, there will be at least two hours that will be broadcast every day uh, from the conference. Um, and we just need to figure out what that agenda is.
2: Yeah. So AMO becomes uh, the go-to place for track broadcasts.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So um, It was interesting when I was listening to um, the conversation that was going on, and clearly uh, Deanna and John are on the forefront, if you will, kind of the cutting edge of uh, media for the 21st century uh, through blogs and and, uh, their work. Uh, and, and I was—I guess I was still when I put the questions together that we were going to talk about. I was still kind of thinking um, old press, old media. Uh, so I'm really kind of interested in uh, whether or not you feel you have any responsibilities towards your audience. Um, you know, clearly, yeah, I probably asked the same thing of, of a print magazine or something like that, and they would probably come back like you stated earlier that. You know, they have a responsibility to their advertisers. But um, so it was really kind of interesting to hear that conversation. So, the question that I'm um, asking is if you could just kind of very bullet po- point, if you will, what you feel your responsibilities are to your viewers through your writing. John, you want to go first? I'll try
0: that. Uh, you know what? I'm finding that there is responsibility, and I've been a little reluctant. To run with it, and I was I was somewhat unaware of it at first. And, and you know, again, to kind of give you a history, I think the first time I posted a blog on the Huffington Post, I maybe had uh, six Facebook shares, and my mother called and told me she read it, and uh, one of my sisters read it. You know, it, we don't get stats from the Huffington Post very often. Sometimes an editor will email you the stats, but the stats are generally private. So it started out, you know, a few people were reading it, but now after blogging three years. I definitely have a following. I, I have people that I consistently get comments and emails from, and uh, you know, it, it reaches a lot of people. Uh, the shocker that I had was about a year and a half into it, I wrote a blog post about uh, iPhone photography and about a competition for iPhone photography. And somebody at The Huffington Post liked it and gave it to America Online because they're the same company. And they put it on the uh, homepage for America Online for 21 hours, or 24 hours. And my editor called me the next day, and she said, John, you had a million page views in 24 hours. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and I heard that, and I just, I just kind of uh, sat quietly in my chair for half an hour. I thought, I need to really be thinking hard about what I'm writing, because that kind of reach, I mean, I, I wouldn't have dreamed of that. Uh, you know, a year and a half before, when I just had my little uh, Google blog that my friends were reading. So I think there is a responsibility, and uh, I, the way I try to handle that responsibility is I am getting more self-conscious about what I post, I mean, especially just in terms of, of editing. I, I try to write uh, well and write professionally. Um, I try to learn from my mistakes. I think that that putting a list of artists in that representational art blog that, that Michael was talking about Looking back, I think that was a mistake because by creating a list of artists that I wanted to promote, that I was, uh, you know, kind of giving a positive push for, I excluded a lot of people. And I think a lot of people misunderstood that and that made some people angry. And I probably, uh, if I didn't, maybe, I don't know if I lost friends, but but I stepped on the, the toes of a few people I really like and respect. So I, I try to use the responsibility and the pride of positive way. I'm trying to shine the light on artists and topics that I think are valuable and I'm trying to do it responsibly but on the other hand if I'm not a little bit carefree and a little bit random and if I don't stir the pot now and then I'm not really a blogger (laughs) so I have to find a happy medium.
1: (laughs) So true. Deanna?
3: Yeah, I think that for me what I see um, happening in other places is that attention is given to somebody who might titillate, but there's no substance there. Um, but it would be an easy way to, to go, and you'd know you'd have guaranteed readers. And so I think my responsibility is to never be tempted by that, um, to never include somebody just because it would be provocative, but there's nothing there. The emperor has no clothes, Um So my responsibility is anyone I interview and invest my time into interviewing them and profiling them and asking the reader to do the same, to stop what they're doing in their lives and take some time out, that there's a trust and I can't let them down because they might not come back the next time if I've let them down, right? Um, Or it might uh, hurt the reputation of other folks I've interviewed if, I let them down. So I do feel a huge responsibility that those who I invite to come to the table are those who I feel generally have something to enrich society with. And, of course, that's my own idea of what that means to enrich society. So I do have my biases. But um, simply to provoke, just for the sake of provoking or to, to, to you know, to get the readers in and, and that I, I, that people will have to look elsewhere for that.
0: I was I was it, reading Deanna about uh, there was an actor I don't know who the actor was that told his Twitter followers when I reach a million Twitter followers I'll post a nude picture of myself and he did it okay a million Twitter <laughs> okay. followers so I don't think you or I will be doing that anytime soon uh, and well, I, I for love yourself everybody.
3: you know I just <laughs> I never say never De-
0: De- Deanna <laughs>
1: yeah but
0: anyway. I think that, uh, you know, I don't want to avoid controversy necessarily. I want my, my blog to take a kind of a natural course where I blog about what I think is of interest and, and the people whose art uh, gets my attention. And every now and then, as a, a natural course of events, I think there's going to be some controversy. Yes. But I don't want it to be artificial and I don't want to seek it out uh, yes. simply for the attention.
3: I'm it, with you it, on
1: that completely. A, it's interesting from a, a point of view of you know I'm listening to you and um Deanna and John talk about this is uh, some of the same things are are happening even in the talk blog or blog talk radio venue MLR Chat, because when I started this, it was more or less just to uh share some information from master artists to um you know artists out there that wanted to listen to it uh had heard from a number of people that. You know, I don't have the money to travel to a workshop. Your show is replacing that. I get to hear the masters speak and, you know, artists speak about, um, you know, art. And this is great. And then it turns around, you know, I found myself later sitting there talking about uh, or saying to myself, you know, I have an interest in this and I can't be the only one out there that has an interest in this particular thing. So I started to to widen uh, what I would do with the show a bit. And, you know, of course, Michael approached me to, to uh, be involved in track, and, you know, I think there's there's some good in, in bringing these series to uh, artists who might not actually start to think about these things that we should be thinking about. I, I look at AMO as kind of a historic record, of, an audio historic record of, um, you know, representational art, and um, so that's one of the, yeah you know, that that was the main reason why I started the show, and I hear some of the same things from you all. For what you're doing
0: Well you know speaking of controversy Around uh, some people You just say the the phrase Track or you say the name Michael Pierce And you get some eyebrows raised <laughs> <laughs> Thanks John <laughs> <laughs> You know
1: uh, Okay well that explains a lot though.
0: Though. Yeah. In I one of the blogs I wrote Somebody uh, What was that representational art one uh, Somebody contacted me and said John you hate modern art and I said, "You haven't been to my house. <laughs> you know my house <laughs> that. But that person was saying, "Oh, you're becoming part of that whole track thing, and that's uh, political, and that uh, you know kind of taints you, and that says who you are." And political? Absolutely
2: not. We're we're not political in the slightest.
0: <laughs> we couldn't
2: be less political. <laughs> that's a total, totally inaccurate characterization of track.
0: Good, we, good we're try, a platform.
2: Pla- track is all about providing a platform for many different voices who are interested in representational art. It's certainly not a political platform in the slightest. It's, a, it's simply a platform for people to come and talk about representational art. We're not political. It's so
0: important that you tell people that, Michael. That's that's so important. And that and was beautifully said. I think, and this is to Deanna, too, that's who we are as bloggers, is, uh, you know, a blogger – Google Blogger has, what, 100 million subscribers? How many people have blogs across the world? But when you begin to get a following and an audience, your platform goes up a couple of inches. And mm. track is a platform, and a blog is a platform. Uh, we've got the opportunity to say something, and some people are going to listen to us. Uh, that's a, a beautiful metaphor.
2: Yeah. 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 But I, I would hate to see us uh, trying to limit the conversation in any way or, or align representational art with any political Side. That's absolutely not our intention. Not at all. In fact, the people who are involved in the organisation of Track, we 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 never talk about politics. I don't think anyone has any particular great interest in politics. I certainly don't. I'm not a political person. So it's, I think it's very interesting you should say that that there is a perception out there that we have a political uh, side. Perhaps it's because representational was uh, was set aside and. Uh, associated um, or not associated with the uh, the more um, Marxist tendencies of uh, of post modernity, perhaps I, I don't know. I don't well, know. Well, we talk no,
0: about if people use the phrase the art world, and I tried to stop using that because as a friend of mine says, there are many, many, many art worlds, and and I think yes. that's correct. Uh and, and Michael that goes with that metaphor of platforms. You have to think of a park with lots of people discussing and speaking. Yeah. And it's like a speaker's park in London. Everybody now every now and then somebody gets to stand on the platform uh and uh, ignite a wider discussion.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: So uh, Michael, you um with that we have a question that's focused on uh aesthetic principles. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we're trying to do in
2: with the upcoming track and yeah, yeah yeah i do um you know track uh this year we last time we did track we were trying to just see if we had a community which obviously we do there are an enormous amount of people uh who are keen to uh to participate in representational art in making it and talking about it and uh all aspects of representational art Um, And so having established that uh, community and knowing that there are many, many millions of people who are keen on representational art, uh, now what we want to do is figure out, well, okay, what does it mean to be making representational art in the 21st century? Uh, Because there's a a profound lack of aesthetic uh, writing uh, out there which talks about contemporary representation. It's been a a bit of a, not necessarily a taboo topic among uh, art writers, uh, but aesthetics and the meaning of art, in especially, especially representational art, uh, hasn't been well written about. Uh, so there's a huge void there, a very big opening for people to s- describe what is going on, why it's going on. Uh, so what, that's what we want to look at at track this year. Why Why do we make these paintings of things that are recognizably things, not abstractions of things? Now, what's the purpose of doing these Things. And, and uh, as John said earlier on, I, I'm interested in the relationships between things, uh, not the differences personally. Uh, so I'm, I'm very keen to see the different and re- uh, varied positions that people take uh, on how we identify the characteristics of representational art uh, in this century. Because it is a different century, and it does have remarkably different characteristics. You, uh, you know by now, I'm sure, that I'm particularly interested in complexity and emergence. And I'm very interested uh, in how the aesthetics of complexity and emergence uh, are described and what uh, what the implications are for artists. So uh track this year is all about that. And I'm really looking forward to that conversation and finding out a variety of opinions. It's it's really exciting. Um, so
1: John and, and Deanna, hearing what Michael said about uh, that, do you have any thoughts around aesthetic principles and, and values that are implicit in representational art that you'd like to share?
0: Well,
3: you um, know, I know, I would... Answer. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Deanna, I you're first this time. Go
3: ahead. <laughs> no, I just have a very simple answer. Um, I think it's about soul. And for me, um, that's really that, that's the essence of art. That's what my readers are looking for. That's what I look for. Um, at the end of a, a long, hard day, when I need my soul to be ignited, I look to art. Um, and so that that's it for me. That's all, that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: there, there's so many uh, rich threads and, and values in representational art, and I'll, I'll pick up one of them, uh, and I know Michael's interested in this, too, the idea of Skill, And I come at this as a community college art instructor. I, I teach both studio art, I teach painting on Mondays, and then I teach art history and, and art appreciation. And for a whole variety of reasons, skill has been discounted. Uh, there's been a real emphasis on maybe producing art and on new media in art. But as we've had those kinds of emphases coming out of postmodernism, I see students coming into my classes who enjoy nothing more than the slowness of the class and the chance to pick up uh, pencils, chance to pick up the brush, and to do these traditional time-honored skilled art activities, and uh, that's such a respite from the high-paced, you know, the fast-paced society we have now where we all text each other walking down the the sidewalk looking into our iPhones, and I do that as much as anybody does. But, uh, you know, representational art, the kind of art we're hearing talked about at track uh, reinvigorates our interest in skill. And I think that skill can connect very, very well with the honest of soul, uh, to put yourself completely and richly and in an engaged way into a work of art. And I think that the, the pendulum of, of the art world or the many art worlds is coming back, uh towards more of a respect for skill.
2: Yes, I agree with you John. I think that that swing is uh, is definitely upon us. Uh, we we are moving back to appreciation of skill and uh, and technique and sincerity too uh, many of uh, many of our students here um at the university uh California Lutheran University I should have um uh, are are very keen on finding stillness and quietness in their lives uh, because they're aware of this constant barrage of media and uh, the superficiality of media uh, and they've become rather rather enthusiastic supporters of of finding places of quietness uh, and they love being in class and being in being quiet in drawing classes and painting classes uh, so um yes i think that i think there's great hope as well attached to this
1: So um, we're actually, I think we're starting to wind down the questions. John, I wanted to check with you. You talked a, a couple times about how blogging is different than magazine writing. Um, did, do you think you copy, did you cover everything on that, or did, is there something else additionally you want to to say in that regard?
0: Well, I'll ramble a little bit. I'll, maybe I can think of some more experiences, or say a little bit more about uh, blogging. I know one mm-hmm. debate I've had with other bloggers. You know, we, at the HuffPost, we get in touch with each other, and our, our editor has gotten us together a couple of times. We've had a big debate about the short blog versus the long blog. And uh, somebody very, very early on told me uh, that, John, uh, for every hundred people that open up one of your blogs, very likely only two or three people read them all the way to the end. <laughs> and, and that really shocked me. I really thought, you know, could that be true? And, uh, you know, I mean, is, is that personal about my writing or about my topic? But, you know, I thought about that, and I, I see it a little bit differently. You, you don't know, but I found that on the Internet, the two best blogs are the short blog, and the short blog, blog can be image-heavy with maybe just uh, the littlest bit of text. But I actually think some of the longer blogs are very, very much appreciate it. And some of the interviews I've done that have gone over 2,000 words that the editor you know, emailed me back, John, can you cut that down? And I said no. <laughs> you know, uh, I do read them to the end because one of the beauties of blogging is you don't have an editor saying you have eight column inches. You know, you don't have that. So if there's a lot to say, you just go all the way to the end of the blog and you hit uh, submit. So that's something mm-hmm. I've been appreciating about, uh, about blogging. I'm trying to think about
3: other experiences I've had. Yeah, Deanna? Yeah, I I would agree. It's, it's a very organic process. Um, it's not about asking the ten questions and then you're done, you know, and, and asking them if you were on a desert island, what would you, blah, 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 kind of questions. But it's about starting with a question, seeing how deep you can take it, and then where does that go, and where does that go, and then suddenly both of you go, I think we got it. Let's end here. We've arrived. Yeah.
2: I'd like and to you know, ask a question—a question to both of you about uh, if I'm an artist um, and working away, how do I
3: get your attention? How do I—how yeah. do I get written about? Okay. Well, that's kind of an ironic, tricky, tricky one. Do you—do you want to go first, John? <laughs> Yeah, I actually I wrote a, a blog about that. It's
0: on my website. It's a very very brief blog. I thought let's be transparent about how I choose my topics, and I okay. told people this is quite honest. I do read my email, and when someone sends me a photo or a link, you know, to their website, I always try to follow up, even if it takes you know a day or two or three till things uh, quiet down, and I let them know that uh, I don't mind hearing from people or being on waiting lists but that my choice of them will be impulsive. <laughs> you know, I really let them know that. So if it's the right time for me and, and if, if their work interests me, I'll contact them, and I'll do an interview or I'll do a profile. And by the same pe- token, I let people know that if I'm not able to write about you, uh, you know, please don't be discouraged, just stay in touch, and, and the right moment may come. and Maybe where they send me a new piece that's really exciting, or they're in a show that has a theme that's very dynamic and that you know kind of draws me in. And uh, you know sometimes it's as simple as I have a very busy week or I have a very very quiet week, and that can be the difference between being blogged about or not being blogged about. But uh, anyways, I wrote a little uh, you know blog about that with my email address and uh, try to encourage people to just to uh, be in touch with me. And then the other thing that I do, I, I do use Facebook quite a bit. Because a lot of art world people have connected with me on Facebook. And some of my best interviews or best blogs have come from somebody posting, Did you see that so and so is having a show? Or have you seen so and so's uh, new work? And so that kind of network of the friends of your friend's friends uh, can be very, very powerful.
2: How about
3: you, Deanna? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no that that's very helpful what you did John. I like that idea and I probably should do that too. I do get queries saying, you know, how do I get profiled or how do I get on your magazine. Um and I've always been uncomfortable about that even when I was a librarian and artists would come up wanting to know how they would get in the gallery and so so forth. Um because it's such a personal thing. Here's my baby. Here's a huge part of my of of me. Do you like it enough, you know? Um I don't even like to go to yard sales or or garage sales or anything where the artist is there in front of their work because I just feel so (laughs) much pressure to (laughs) give them positive feedback. Um, So what I tell folks is I have a limited amount of time and space, and I select things because I feel that that work has something to say now um, to take the conversation forward. And and if I don't select them, it doesn't mean that I don't think they're they're talented. Um, But that I've got a lot of different criteria I I keep in my head about what I'm looking for to to create that balance and to keep that conversation um, moving forward. Uh, But it's a difficult one. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's just. That's really all I would say. So I would encourage folks certainly to to give me their links or examples of their work, um, but to not be hurt if right away. And sometimes um, I will have somebody in the back of my mind, and it's not right right now. But I'll maybe I'll be following their work and I'll be watching how they evolve, and then it, they'll do something, and I'll say, Yeah, they're there. And then I'll back to them, or then I'll approach them. Um, or it's just the the greater conversation will move organically to the place where it lands closer to to what they're doing, and and that's the right time. But I I have had um, an artist who was not quite there yet, and um, I even did an interview with them and then decided not to run with it because I do, again, feel a great responsibility to my readers um, that I don't just – post something because it's time to post something and so I had a conversation with the artist who wanted to know you know how come how come my interview isn't being published and I said that you're not there yet and when we and I I learned that through the interview and you're young you've got plenty of time to go on your journey I'm not going anywhere as far as I know I'll still be here and um, you'll know when you're there and check back in with me so I guess that's kind of an unfair answer, but that's my answer.
0: This conversation, suddenly I thought of a good anecdote to add to this. Um, I am part of a show now, as an artist, not as a writer, but I'm, I'm part of a show at Mount San Antonio College, Mount San Antonio, and it's called Sense and Sensibility. And it's actually going to be a two-part show. There's going to be another version that comes up in a few months, but it's entirely an exhibition of arts professionals, including a lot of curators and writers and and, and critics who also are artists. And uh, so I put a painting up, and of course it reminded me how vulnerable it is to show art. It made me very, very nervous, you know, to show my painting. And then we had a panel discussion, and the panel discussion was full of art writers. And during the discussion, a man stood up, uh, you know, to ask a question, and he was a little bit Pushy. He was, you know, maybe a little bit angry in his uh, delivery of the question. He just said, "Well, look, you know, look at all of you. There you are, your art writers and your art critics." He says, "I kind of see a country club. You know, you all, you all have made it into a certain level of the uh, art scene. You know, I'm an artist, and I'd like to be written about, and I'd like to know from all of you how can I join your country club? You know, how can I have my work be made part of this?" And uh, listening to this guy, I told him a story. I said. If you're in the you know the arts world if you're in this you've been on both sides of this and i told how when i had a show as a young man in my early 20s i got a tiny review in the LA times i had about two paragraphs and i knew it was coming and i got up at 6am to get the times out of the driveway and the the critic ripped me he said the show was really a disaster and i'll never forget some of the things he said he said john he said your painting is ragged at best and i read that first thing in the morning then my grandmother called me she'd read it because she knew this was coming out in the la times and it was just it was really it really really hurt so i said to that guy you know if you're a creative person you've you've had it all from uh, every direction and i also told him something interesting which is that now i've actually become friendly with the guy who wrote that and i've never brought it up because I think that art writers and critics have a hard job. I I respect that. I think they're doing their job. And I hope that that people, Deanna, who deal with you, Michael, people who deal with you, hopefully people who deal with me, realize we're just people. We've all seen it from both sides. We've all been criticized, and we've all had our moments of success. And uh, we just do the best we can.
1: Okay, well... Um, Michael I think we've got time for um, one last question um, and then if uh, everybody could share what they've got coming up in the, the month of November if they know if they don't know that's fine too because um, I know it's a little bit off but uh, that's when this show will be be live so Michael you one last question.
2: Well, I, I I dwell on beauty quite a lot. Uh, people know I'm uh, I'm uh, obsessed about beauty and trying to understand what beauty is. Uh, just uh, thought for, for you guys, what do you make of beauty? How do you describe beauty? What I'm sure you look for beauty in in uh, the work that you write about. How do you decide what's beautiful?
0: You know, I saw a wonderful comment about this. Uh, maybe avoiding Michael a specific description of beauty. But I saw someone comment, and it may have even been Roger Scruton, because I've listened to some of his videos and things you put online, but that, that uh, beauty deflects us from our own narcissism. And I wow, thought that was
3: so helpful.
0: Cool. Uh, and so this idea that there's something about a work of art that just draws you out of your own petty world and your own self-absorption and your own current problems and takes you away uh, that, to me, is beauty, and uh, it's so rare and so powerful when you really come across that.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm.
2: Diana?
3: That's, that's beautiful. I, I used use the word I beauty. I think i
0: that, yeah.
3: Um, I think it's when we see something that reminds us that we are more than we think we are, and uh, life is more than we think it, it is. That, that sense of miracle whatever miracle means and that's a really you know touchy word to use but that sense of of what, some there's that that shimmer that that energy that's that's um emanating um that ignition, ignition ignited feeling in in one's soul in one's psyche that wait a second there is so much more to being human to being alive than we tend to think of as we go through our day and this piece of art just really t- brings it home to me hmm. and that can be a piece of music or, or it doesn't have to be a painting it could be yeah anything it could be a dance that we take in and we just go <gasps> okay I haven't br- breathed the last five minutes I gotta breathe
1: Yeah, <laughs> feel it in the heart feel it in the chest so. okay well um do any of you have anything that you'd like to uh, talk about that may be coming up in the in the coming months that you'd like to highlight
3: to our audience? I'll mention
0: something. Deanna, okay. I keep cutting you off. You go first.
3: You know, I don't think that far ahead. I have lots of <laughs> artists lined up, but it's really I kind of see what shakes down week to week, and and I, I don't go that far ahead, unfortunately. That was. Well, I, I knew I was
1: all getting. All <laughs> Go ahead, John
0: you, you know, I have to apologize My wife says I cut people off <laughs> So <laughs> I'm trying not to cut people off But I'm I'm so enjoying talking to you all I apologize if the coffee's kicked in And I've, you know, jumped in too soon A couple of times um, I'm curious So this at Riverside Community College It opened last night It's called uh, Matthew Cooper New Devotional Paintings So if you're in Southern California uh, come by and see it Matthew's an artist from New Zealand who has been looking at the tradition of devotional uh, cu- uh, religious art especially folk art and he's brought that into his own work uh, and he's also brought uh, kind of a wide range of symbols into his art and uh, I'm very very proud of the show and, and very proud to be uh, you know, associated with Michael and with Leslie Brown who's the gallery director at RCC so that's up And then on my blog, I've got some good current interviews with representational artists. I had uh, Nicola Darlato about two weeks ago, who is a staggeringly talented uh, artist who grew up in Italy and learned to paint with a monk uh, until he was a teenager. It's quite a story. Uh, And then I'm going to do an interview with Adam Miller, which should be coming up, uh, well, by the time this show runs, that should be hopefully on the blog for two or three weeks. So I'd urge people just to go to, go to HuffPost and search for my name. It's John uh, Seed, like you plant in the ground, S-E-E-D. And hopefully there will be some fresh interviews and profiles of uh, all kinds of artists, but especially representational artists.
2: Adam Miller is a remarkable painter, John. I'm, I'm uh, excited to see that you're writing about him. Uh, I've been thinking about writing about him myself and uh, looking at the uh, the symbolism in, in his uh In his work, Uh, I think he's really remarkable.
0: I think he's at the top of his game, and he calls himself a contemporary mythologist. Mm. He also defines himself as as a humanist, and uh, my God, he's only 34, and he's Mm. just uh, so, so talented. So I'm really looking forward to that interview.
2: Yeah, he's good friends with Brad Kunkel, of course, who uh, is the the, the wonderful painter of all those gold leaf uh, pictures with the gray ladies, And gold leaf in sort of mythological backgrounds, not mythological, but fantastic kind of backgrounds. Really
0: beautiful work. Yeah, big talent.
3: I I love that term, contemporary mythologist. Oh, it's Mm. luscious.
1: Okay, well, we're um, coming down to. Sorry, it's like I got some feedback somewhere. We're coming down to the to the end of the show, um, and I'd like to thank both John Seed and Deanna Paihwatki for joining us today and, and having such a wonderful conversation uh, about uh, the media. And actually, we were talking more about our social media and blogging and things like that. But I, I really do believe that that's going to be the way of the future, and um, I think that it's going to have a huge impact on uh, 21st century. Representational Art. So, John and Deanna, thank you so much for your insights. We appreciate the fact that you took time to talk with us today.
3: Uh, It's lovely. Thank you for inviting me. Mm
0: -hmm. I enjoyed speaking with all of you very, very much. Thanks for including me.
1: You're welcome. You're most welcome. And, Michael, thank you for taking time out and being my co-host on the series. Always uh, a
2: pleasure, Linda. Looking forward to the next one.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well and uh, there'll be uh, notes about that. We'll be posting it in Facebook. Um, you can follow us by going up and clicking on the follow-up button on the top of the show page so that you'll get announced announcements right directly to your inbox uh, when that will occur. And uh, also you can sign up for our newsletter out at um, AMO, uh, uh Deanna, quickly, say your website address again.
3: So it's www. Dot combustus, C-O-M-B-U-S-T-U-S, dot com. Okay.
1: John, is there a website address that they can go and read your work? Yeah. Every, I, I double post everything.
0: It's a nice thing about blogging for the Huffington Post. You own all your own content. So my blog can be seen at johnc.com or on the Huffington Post.
1: Okay. And Michael, the tracks? Website? Well,
0: track of course, is at
2: uh, track2014.org, so it's trac 2 0 one dot org
1: Okay, and until next time, we will uh, hope that you all stay well and that you keep painting and keep enjoying art. Thank you, everyone. Good night.
0: Thank you.